Amen. Thanks again for joining us this morning. Uh, if you were able to join us last week and you endured through everything that we went, to, went through, I just want to say thank you for your patience. Uh, so a transformer blew outside the church building at 1025 uh, last Sunday morning, uh, causing a lot of the power to shut down in the building, uh, which led to the complications during our live stream. Uh, we're glad to have the power back up. We're glad for technology. And we're thankful to be able to, to meet like this and to be able to share in God's Word together. For what it's worth, uh, BG&E told us that they believe that it was a squirrel that caused the power outage. Uh, so it, it is the squirrel's fault that led to the demise of our service yesterday, last Sunday. So there you go. Uh, but this morning, we are here together, and I'm thankful. Uh, we are in Genesis 50. We have come to the final chapter of Genesis, the final message in our series, Trusting the Goodness of God. Uh, you know, we can summarize Genesis. If you take the whole book of Genesis and you want to kind of boil it down to, to kind of three things, you could say it this way. Genesis is about life, death, and the promises of God. Back in Genesis 1, when we started over a year and a half ago, we read that God created everything that exists out of nothing, really. And, and he speaks, his word creates, and he creates galaxies and planets and all living creatures. And then he creates humans, man and woman, in his very own image. And God looks at all that he has created and he says, it is what? Good. Very good. But as amazing as it was, it doesn't take long, Genesis 3, where we read that sin enters the world. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, turn from God and try to be their own God, and, and through that sin came death. And from that point on, death continues to play a major theme in Genesis. Every major character, no matter how significant they are to God's redemptive plan, ultimately dies. Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we read here in this story, and now Joseph. But all along, God has been making incredible promises to his people. From Adam and Eve, he tells them a seed of Eve. There is a child coming at from Eve's womb, from Eve's seed, that will ultimately bring rescue to all humanity, to his people. And, and he makes promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And, and he knew that even though uh, his plans would include sinful people doing sinful things. He would ultimately bring about the Messiah, the Savior, who would save his people from sin and death. And so throughout Genesis, we see slowly but surely, God is, is beginning to fulfill those promises. Now we come to the end of Joseph's account the end of the Genesis account. And this passage really does contain a beautiful summary of life, death, and the promises of God. If you talk to someone who is skeptical of Christianity or skeptical of the Bible, they might share with you a variety of general reasons for that skepticism. And they're all very legitimate. Things like, uh, the Bible is full of contradictions, they'll say. Or, or the Bible is antiquated. Or, I don't believe in miracles. Or, Christianity is too narrow, too rigid, right? Well, you say it's the only way. And there are lots of general issues, general objections to Christianity. But listen to me. In reality, throughout history, there has always been one reason that tends to be the most deeply held objection to Christianity, and it is not general. It is deeply personal. And that objection is this. How can a good God allow so much evil and suffering? 
How can a good God, if you claim he is good, which we do as Christians, how can that God allow so much evil and suffering? It's the problem of evil. It's a question that every one of us has to wrestle with. Is there anyone among us who cannot point to something in their life and say, why this, God? Why that? For me as a kid, why, why did my dad have to die when I was a kid? For you, why, why cancer? Why now? Why that broken relationship? Why no marriage or no kids? These are questions that even people of faith have to wrestle with. Joseph surely wrestled with why God allowed him to suffer so much, and he probably didn't get much insight while he was in the midst of it all. But now, at the end of his life, from the vantage point of looking back at all the pieces of the puzzle, Joseph finally is beginning to understand that his suffering has meaning and purpose. You see, we have been discovering in the Joseph story that with God, silence is not absence. That with God, often when it seems like things are going the most wrong, God is actually most working for our good. You see, you might come to the conclusion that because evil and suffering seem pointless to you, then it must be pointless. But that's faulty reasoning. Just because you can't see a reason why God would allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. When that logic is offered, we as humans really are putting an enormous amount of faith in our own intellect. In essence, we're claiming that since we can't plumb the depths of the universe for answers to our suffering, then there can't be any. That's like saying since we can't plumb the deepest depths of the oceans, which we still can't do, then there must not be anything there. When in fact, the better technology we have, the deeper we go, we are still discovering there are new creatures down there, even entire ecosystems that we didn't even know existed. Today's message is God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And I want to answer this question from the text. How can you trust the goodness of God in a broken and sinful world? How can you trust the goodness of God in a broken and sinful world? There's three reasons, three, three ways, I think, from this text that we see that will help you and I trust the goodness of God, hold on to the goodness of God even in a broken and messed up world. The first one is this. We must resist taking God's role. Resist taking God's role. Genesis 50 opens up with Jacob's death and burial. Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel. He, God changes his name to Israel, right? The 12 tribes of Israel come out of Jacob. This is, this is a pillar in one of the patriarchs of the faith. And now he dies. And Joseph mourns the loss of his father. And he and his brothers do exactly what, the, what his father commanded them with permission from Pharaoh. They leave Egypt. They take Jacob's body back to the promised land, back to the land of Canaan, and they take him to a small piece of land, the same piece where his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham were buried, and he, they bury him there. It happens to be the only piece of land that it was purchased by Abraham in the promised land. Kind of, a, kind of just the beginning uh, seeds of knowing that the promised land would become theirs. 
And that journey is now complete, and they're back in Egypt. And it says in verse 15 that Joseph's brothers send a message to Joseph saying, basically, here's what they say. Dad told us to tell you, be nice to us and don't kill us. That's what they tell him. Jacob never said that. He didn't have reason to say that. But you can tell the brothers are afraid. They're fearful. And verse 17, it says, they say, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And then it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why did Joseph weep? Because he knew that his brothers didn't fully trust him yet. They still feared that he was just biding his time until dad died and then he would get revenge on his brothers. Joseph feels the pain in this moment that the reconciliation process has not taken its full effect in their relationship. And the reality is trust is easily broken, isn't it? But it's a lot harder to rebuild. Not impossible, just harder. And so after sending the message uh, through a carrier, now the brothers themselves appear in person. They bow before Joseph and they say, we are your servants. Do you see that? They're just, they're so, they, they're like, we can't, we'll never be your brothers again. We, we, we're bowing before you. Just don't kill us. They're admitting their sin blatantly, honestly. They said our sin against you is great. They call it evil. And it was great. Their sin was evil. They hated Joseph when he was a boy. They sold him into slavery. They lied to their dad about it. And now after all these years, they just can't believe why Joseph wouldn't hate them back. And look what Joseph says, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He starts by reassuring them, they don't need to be afraid, even though from their point of view, they had every reason to be afraid. Joseph was the second in command in all of Egypt. He was the most powerful man. He could have punished them at the, at the snap of a finger. They would have been doomed. He could have played God if he wanted to and exacted a little divine justice and nobody would have said anything. But Joseph had learned a hard but important lesson from all the evil and the suffering that he endured. And that lesson is this. He is not God. He's not God. You see, putting ourselves in the place of God is actually at the heart of all of our problems. It's the root issue that we deal with. And the temptation to take God's role, to sit in God's seat, is strong. We look at the problems in our lives. We look at the problems in our world and we begin to think, you know what? If I were God, I could do a lot better. If I were God, I would move this around. I would do that. I would not allow this. I would prevent that from happening. But when we do that, we betray an attitude that says, I am wiser than God. I could manage the universe a lot better than God could. And my question is, really? How have you done managing your own life, your own relationships, your own work, your home? Uh, 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 do people look at you and say, wow, you're a genius. You always get it right. You mean to tell me that with limited knowledge, that with limited 
experience and a limited lifespan, you and I think that we can do better than the eternal, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. We try to take God's role all the time in so many ways. We do it with our anxiety, right? Anxiety is often rooted in, I need to be in control. And so if I can't control something, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I want to try to figure out how I can be in control. We take God's role all the time. Here's, here's how, it is, how it's played out in the text. One way we do that is by holding a grudge or harboring unforgiveness. Joseph doesn't do that, but it's what we do all the time. You see, when you hold a grudge against someone, when you nurture that resentment in your heart, you are taking God's place. Only God has the right to sit in ultimate judgment of a person. Now, I'm not talking about earthly justice, right? There's, there's a thing called earthly justice that we long for, that we want people to, to get justice. But I'm talking about divine justice. I'm talking about getting people what they ultimately deserve. And we try to do that. We try to sit in judgment of others. And God says, don't do that. Romans 12, 19, God says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So often, we want to put on the judge's robe, right? We want to go in the chamber, put on the judge's robe, go in the courtroom, sit on his bench, and we want to preside. And God stands in front of us and says, Excuse me, you're in my seat. You don't have the authority or the ability to judge justly. Why? Because we're all sinners who deserve our own judgment. Only God has the perfect knowledge and the pure moral authority to know what's in a person's heart, to know what they deserve. And he's saying in Romans 12, leave it to him. Ultimately, he will judge fairly. Whether that judgment comes now here on earth or at the end of time, God will have justice. Not only that, but only God has the power to sit in judgment of evil without becoming evil himself. You see, when we try to take God's role, when we try to sit in judgment of other people, all of a sudden we are in a dangerous spot. As one pastor said, we're sitting on a knife's edge. You see, when someone wrongs you or commits real evil against you, it is devastating and painful. Trust me, I know firsthand. And I know many of you have been through incredibly painful circumstances. When that happens, though, you and I are in a dangerous position because if you and I refuse to forgive, which obviously takes time, but if we begin to harbor bitterness, if we long to pay that person back, you end up yourself becoming evil your heart will slowly get colder and harder. You will keep thinking about what happened and it will start to eat you up inside and that will lead to self-pity, self-absorption. That's just a different form of evil. And if you think you can pay someone back now that somehow you can even the score, you see, you have become the very evil that you have grown to hate. By, by repaying evil for evil, you become evil. Or as Pastor Tim Keller stated it poignantly, quote, the fastest way to become like Satan is to become like God. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. 
If we try to take God's role, that's the very thing Satan wanted to do. It's at the heart of evil. If we're, if we're willing to let God be God, that's the very thing that shapes us into the image of Christ. Is there an area of your life where you have been seeking God's role? Christian, you must resist it. Joseph had come to the point where he, he was able to say, I'm not gonna, I'm, am I in the place of God? Resist taking God's role. The second way that we can trust the goodness of God in a broken and sinful world is to rest in God's providence. To rest in God's providence. When it comes to considering the evil and suffering in our lives, we have to admit that our view is shaped by our vantage point. In other words, perspective is everything. Perspective is critical. In fact, and I say this all the time, and I'll keep saying it, as it comes from my professor, my counseling professor, when life stinks, our perspective shrinks. When life stinks, our perspective shrinks. And I, I, I showed this years ago, but this is, to me, this is kind of a great picture of it. If I look at this warning label, it says, warning, death or serious injury may occur. And if all I see is this, if I've zoned in on this warning label, I might freak out. I might be like, oh my goodness, whatever this thing is attached to, I don't want to have any part of. I do not want to have it around me. If that's how dangerous this thing is, forget it. But that's because my perspective is zoned in on that warning label. But if I zoom back out and see what I'm looking at, I'm looking at a car seat. That's meant to protect and keep a child safe. This happens to be my oldest son when he was a baby. And you see, it, the warning label, you, you might not even be able to see it. It's on the inside. You see, perspective changes. How we view a situation, how we view our lives. Or to use a different illustration, let's say you are hiking. You're on a hike and, and you get lost. What should you do? You don't go down to the valley to figure out how to get back to where you're supposed to go. No, you get higher. You get to a higher plane. Why? So you can see further and get some perspective on where you want to go. The question we need to ask is, from what perspective do you view your circumstances? In verse 20, here's what Joseph says. After saying, I'm not God. I'm not going to take the place of God. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, meaning that evil, for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil against me. Joseph does not exonerate his brothers from the sins that they committed. He says it was evil. He doesn't, Joseph doesn't minimize human responsibility, but nor does he minimize divine sovereignty. He holds them together. It's not a problem to solve, it's a tension to hold. The brothers meant it for evil when they sold Joseph into slavery. But God meant it for good by bringing Joseph to Egypt. Potiphar's wife meant it for evil when she falsely accused Joseph of rape leading to his imprisonment. But God meant it for good by allowing Joseph to meet Pharaoh's cupbearer and demonstrate his skills at dream interpretation. It was evil that Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer and had to spend several more years in prison unnecessarily. 
And yet God meant it for good by causing the cupbearer to remember Joseph at just the right time when no one else could interpret Pharaoh's dream. And that led Joseph to the highest position in Egypt where he could provide grain for all the Egyptian empire and his own family living in Canaan, ultimately to bring them into Egypt and save them. Don't you see? Joseph was not removing the responsibility of his brother's wrongdoing. They did evil against their brother. It was wrong, period. No excuses. But their choices were not decisive in determining what happens in our world. It was God's will that was decisive. And now after many years, he has gained perspective. He now understands that to only see the evil is a flawed perspective. It's a limited perspective. And from that vantage point, when he, when he got up to a vantage point of a higher elevation, when, when he was able to kind of look at the broader picture, he was able to see God overruling the evil actions of others and using them for good. Over and over in this series, we have talked about the providence of God. That's called, what, he, what Joseph just said is called the providence of God. It's God accomplishing his perfect will in and through the actions of all people, whether good or bad. Some people, some of us tend to kind of be on one, or one side of the spectrum or, not, or the other. Some of us tend to only see the bad in the world right? You've learned you can't trust people. They've hurt you. You feel like life is filled with pain, and that perspective shapes how you live. You tend to be negative, um, disappointed, frustrated often. Maybe you've numbed yourself to the pain of life. Some of us live that way. It, you see, your, your perspective will shape how you live. Other of us kind of swing the other way, and we think, life is great. Everything is great. Life is awesome. Trials are no big deal. They're just a facade. And that perspective will shape how you live as well. Those tend to, these people tend to be insensitive to the pain of others, aloof, lacking of empathy. And in reality, what, what some of us do is we end up going back and forth, don't we? Right? So when things are going well, God is good. I'm blessed. When things are bad, God is absent. I've messed up. He's punishing me. You see, we can all learn from Joseph. He holds both pieces together in tension. Life is bad. Evil and suffering are real. He doesn't deny it. And he says, God is still good. God is still working things out according to his plan. The Bible teaches that God is working all things out for the good of his children. We read it earlier in our gospel reading, Romans 8, 28. And we know, you see that? And we know, and we are convinced, other translations say. Are you convinced? Do you know that for those who love God, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, who are, he has in the grip of his hands, do you know that all things work together for your good? Because you've been caught according to his purpose. Christian, do you believe that? Think about how much God was able to do through the evil done to Joseph. 
The suffering of this one man led to the saving of the entire Egyptian empire and, and even the rescue of the covenant family. And for Joseph, some of the good was revealed during his lifetime. You think, you know, Joseph, he got to see the end. He got to see it all come together. It's kind of tied in a nice bow, right? I don't, we don't get that in our lives. But did he really? Yes, Joseph got to see how he was able to protect the Egyptian empire and, and save everyone from famine. But not all the good did he see. He still ends up dying in Egypt, not in the promised land. The nation of Israel, the people of Israel, don't yet possess the promise that they have from God. God has still not brought the Messiah. Don't think that Joseph saw all the good here. He saw glimpses of it. For you, God might, might reveal some of that good that he's working out in maybe the next few months, maybe the next few years. Maybe it won't be for a, a few hundred years. And maybe it won't be to the end of time when God peels back the curtain and you begin to see the other side of the picture that he's been coloring and painting. But we can know that one day he will show his good purpose in all of it. I want to share two implications of resting in God's providence. Two implications. Number one, if you're resting in God's providence, you can know that you can't thwart God's plan for your life. You can't screw up your life. Do you hear me? I know you can do a lot of things to screw things up. You just can't screw up God's plan. I know you, some of the things that you and I have done in our lives, and, and, and they're embarrassing, they're shameful. I think of my own sin. I think of the, own, the ways that I have failed in life. Listen, even your own sin cannot prevent God from accomplishing His will, His plan for your life. Even your sin, which I'm not excusing, even your sin, which God does not bear responsibility for, you do, I do. He's not the author of sin. And yet you better believe He means to use even our sin to bow before his sovereign will in shaping us into the image of Christ and in transforming our world. Just like he used the sin of these brothers to bring about so much good and salvation ultimately. You can't thwart God's plan for your life. That's not an excuse to sin. That's a reason to pursue holiness in awe of God's amazing grace. Secondly, maybe more soberly, God can use the evil that is racism for good. Please hear me closely because I want to choose my words carefully. What we have been witnessing in recent years and really in the last few months in the mistreatment and the loss of black lives is racism. Whether it's George Floyd or Christian Cooper or Breonna Taylor or Maude Arbery or so many others, Treating people as beneath others or even treating people differently because of the color of their skin is evil. Racism is simply a form of taking God's place. That's point number one. Racism is doing just that. It's the idea that I think I'm superior for whatever reason, whether it's because of the color of my skin, the size of my salary, where I live, my educational background, or you fill in the blank. And the sin of racism has been and continues to be exposed before our very eyes. That's the first part. What you meant for evil. 
It is evil. But what if, what if God is exposing the racism in our society in order to bring us to our knees in repentance and to change hearts? Joseph was hated. Listen, see if you, can he- you can't hear the similarities. Joseph was hated, enslaved, falsely accused, racially slandered by Potiphar's wife, and wrongly imprisoned. Sound familiar? And yet God used all of that evil for good. Would you join me today and pray, Lord, do it again. Do it again. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Make no mistake, the good that we are seeking has not yet arrived. It's not yet happened. We're still dealing with with the evil of racism. We are far from where we need to be. But I believe that even in the tragic loss of life, even in all the injustice, God can bring about lasting change in our own hearts and in our nation. The question is, will we let him? Will we let this moment cause us to examine our own hearts and expose whatever blind spots there might be? This topic is so important, church, and we are going to continue to talk about it because it's hard, but it's necessary. Are you resting in God's providence? Even in your pain, even in your sorrows, even in your sin and your past failures. That's how Joseph was able to trust the goodness of God. And finally, we must receive and share God's love. Joseph received God's love. And that's why he was able to share with his brothers. Verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The love and grace that Joseph shows his brothers is astounding. He is loving his enemies. It's not just, I've forgiven you. It's much more. It's not just, I've forgiven you, but look, we're not going to have any relationship anymore. Like, I've forgiven you, but we're done. No, it's, don't fear. I'm going to take care of you. Not only have I forgiven you of all the evil, I'm going to provide for your families. I'm going to provide for your kids. Even when you die, their children and their children, they're going to be taken care of. And he spoke kindly to them. Can you see the parallel between this story and the prodigal son story? In Luke 15, the son sinfully rejects his father and takes his inheritance and squanders it off in wild living, prodigal living. That is evil. And yet when he hits rock bottom and makes the journey back home, what does the father do? He runs to his son. He wraps his arms around him and forgives him and kisses him. And and the son bows before his father just like these brothers do. He bows and says, I don't deserve to be your son. Just make me a servant just like these brothers do. But the father says, no way. I'm restoring you to full sonship yet again. You're going to be in my house, an equal son yet again, and I'm going to throw a huge party because you were dead and you're alive again. You were lost, but now you're found, like Cindy sang earlier. That is God's love on display. That is called grace. And Joseph is showing that same love and grace to his brothers. He says, you rejected me, but I welcome you. I'll provide for you. Where did Joseph get the humility and the courage to offer love and grace to his brothers like this? 
It's because Joseph knew. He knew firsthand what it was like to experience the love and grace of God. He knew that God had taken care of him even when he was a spoiled teenager. He knew that he didn't deserve God's blessing of being second in command of Egypt. He didn't earn that. Joseph knew the grace of God. And that's how he was able to share it. He received God's love. He received God's grace in all the things that happened to him. And that is what enables him in this moment to look at his brothers at the end of his life and say, I'm only going to give you what I've been given. Love. Unfailing love. Unqualified love. Grace when you didn't deserve it. Have you received God's love today? And who do you need to show God's love to? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you've been beating yourself up because of something you've done, something that, that happened in the past, and you, and you just, every day, it still plagues you. Do you need to offer yourself the same love and grace that your Heavenly Father offered to you through His Son, Jesus? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your mom or dad that you just, you just cannot let go of that grudge. Maybe it's your in-laws. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't know who it is, but there's, there's, all, there's probably someone in your life that you're still holding on to something and, you're, and, you're, and, and God's saying, will you give them the same love that I gave you? If Joseph's experience of the undeserved grace of God could empower him to forgive others, how much more power do we have to do likewise? Don't you see, Christian, that you have a power, a, a, a greater demonstration of God's love for you. You don't just have God leading you. You're like, you, I know what you're saying. If I was like Joseph, if I had God do all those things for me, then maybe I would have the ability to do it. But here's the thing. You have a greater demonstration of God's providence, of God's care, of God's love, and God's grace. We've said all along through this series and all along through Genesis that Joseph is a picture of Jesus Joseph was betrayed, wrongfully accused, mistreated, and abused. And he comes to the end of his life, and he literally says, am I in the place of God? And that's great. That's amazing. But listen, it's because he wasn't God. Jesus, on the other hand, was also betrayed and mistreated and wrongfully accused and abused, and yet he was God. And he didn't take God's role. He, he didn't stay seated in God, on God's throne. He left his throne. He gave up the seat of judgment. He came down to us. He lived as a human. He experienced all the evil and injustice that, we, that this world had to offer. He suffered greatly. He never sinned, and yet he's murdered on a cross. Don't you see what the cross means? The cross is the ultimate proof that what was meant for evil, the greatest evil, God meant for good. You see, Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He didn't have any. He died for yours and he died for mine. He took all of our guilt so that he could give all of his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you will turn from your sin, if you'll admit, I, I can't be God. I could never be God. I can't even make sense of my own life, let alone the whole world and the universe. God, I turn from my sin and I receive Jesus as Savior by faith and his grace. Listen, God restores you. He forgives you and you can receive his unfailing love. What more could God do to show you that he means everything for good? What more could he do? 
Or as Randy Alcorn said in his book, some people can't believe God would create a world in which people would suffer so much. But isn't it more remarkable that God would create a world in which no one would suffer more than him? No, God doesn't prevent evil. He doesn't erase it. But he does redeem it. He redeems it. And we might face doubts now about whether God is really working all things out for our good, but we always can go back to the cross. We can always go back and look at the extent of his love for us and receive that love. Can you trust the goodness of God even in a broken and sinful world? I think you can. That's the biblical call. As you resist taking God's role, as you rest in God's providence, and as you receive and share his love, you can trust his goodness now until that day when when you see him face to face and in that first moment, that first moment when you see Jesus, it will be worth every moment of hell on earth when you see him and he makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we... We do need you. We are desperate for you. We know you are good. And yet, everything around us begs the question, how can you be good when life is so bad? I thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I thank you for the life of Joseph. He didn't ask, he didn't sign up to be the person who would go through all that he went through. And yet, as the New Testament teaches, these things were written for our benefit. These things happened to him so that we might learn, so that we might be pointed to a Savior, so that we might grow to walk by faith and not by sight. Oh God, as we sing this final song, as we sing about trusting in Jesus our Savior, I pray that right now that there are some who are hearing my voice, maybe watching the screen, and they've never trusted Christ. Maybe they they know of Christianity. Maybe they try to follow the golden rule or the Ten Commandments, but they have not turned from sin and trusted Christ. I pray right now that they would fall to their knees, whether they're 7 or 12 or 82, God, that they would cry out, Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. I'm trusting in you alone. And Lord, be with every Christian, every follower that is seeking to walk, to run this race. May they look to you, Jesus, and find they they have a, a sympathetic high priest who knows what they're going through and can sustain them and empower them to do what is naturally impossible to do. I thank you and I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.